Well, we are continuing on in a series on the Sermon on the Mount that we've been in for a while and we will be for a lot longer. And we're in the Beatitudes still and we've been continuing to explore and ask this question, what is the good life? What does it mean to do well as a person, to flourish and succeed, uh, to achieve success in life? I feel a little bit like a broken record saying this again, but you may not have heard it. So here's another way to think about it. What do you value in life? Actually value, not aspirationally. As in, what are the underlying values that drive your day-to-day decisions, that shape your decisions, that dictate what your credit card statement looks like? That's how you know what you value. Just check it out. Jesus' sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, forces us, forces this question on us by continuing to illuminate the values of the kingdom of heaven. And it's convicting experience to sit with Jesus as, the, as he does this and listen to him talk about what, is it, what does it mean to live the good life um, as we learn what are the sort of values that matter in God's economy because they often look so different than our own and the things that drive us. Self-reliance or poverty of spirit, peace of mind, or mourning, power and recognition, or meekness, personal satisfaction, or hungering and thirsting for God. But remember, these Beatitudes, they're not entrance requirements to get into the kingdom. They're not a list you have to check off in order to be accepted by God. That's not how it works. They're, they're congratulating those who know the delight of the Father. And their lives are being broken and remade and restored and polished into something beautiful by Jesus day after day. The Beatitudes say, blessed are you who are journeying more deeply into the kingdom. Blessed are you who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you're hungering and thirsting for more. Well, today we continue on and descend together into Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus declares that the merciful are blessed. Why are the merciful blessed? Because they will receive mercy. It's a declaration and a promise. Let's think through this carefully together and ask, who are these blessed, merciful people? Why are they blessed and how do we become like them? How do we become blessed, merciful? First question, what is, what is mercy? Who are the blessed merciful? When I was trying to think about a definition of mercy, the first thing that came to my mind was this game we used to play as kids. Does anyone play the game Mercy as kids? When you grab the other person's hand and interlocking and then you like squeeze and try to twist each other's arms until someone cries, Mercy! I can't take it anymore. Did anyone else play that? Yeah, me and my brother played it for hours. It's very painful. (laughs) When you're the younger brother especially. Well, this game, this kid's game, actually tells us something helpful about mercy. Mercy deals with people in misery. Mercy deals with people who are suffering due to sin. The person who cries mercy is in misery. They're in pain. They're hurting. So it's, it's, uh, mercy is always associated with people who are, who are hurting, who are in misery. And when I say um, they're suffering because of sin... I have a wide-scale lens about what I mean by sin in mind. That's anything that's going against the grain of of God's kingdom, of this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about. Anything that's moving the other way, any any of those things that are causing pain or suffering, that's sin. Mercy responds to this misery. 
So mercy sees the, the misery that's caused by sin and it responds. Regardless of whether that misery is caused by the person's wrongdoing or the wrongdoing of others. That's important. Both of those are the case with mercy. Whether I did something wrong or whether someone else hurt me, I'm hurting. So how does this work out in the blessed merciful? Let's think about it in two parts. There's an inner disposition of mercy, and there's outward acts of mercy or actions of mercy. So first, the blessed merciful have a disposition of generosity towards others. The merciful person is willing to see a situation really from the other person's point of view to enter in. They can identify deeply with the person who's hurting and respond to them with graciousness. This is sympathy in the truest sense of the word. It sometimes gets a bad rap, but in the, in the real sense of the word, it means to feel with and to share the sorrow of another, to feel that with another person. It's similar to what we said a couple weeks ago about those who mourn, the blessed mourners. They have a soft heart, which means they're open to, open to feel the weight of what another is experiencing. They're not closed off to it, but they're open to feel that with the other. The merciful, merciful person is also meek. Remember, these all are painting the picture of the blessed. The merciful person is also meek. They are grounded on who they are in Christ. So they are not easily offended by the shortcomings of another, and they don't gloat over another person when they fail. So when the merciful person is wronged, because they are meek, they have an inner strength to see the one who wronged them and to try to figure out what was going on from their point of view. This isn't easy to do when we get hurt, is it? But to think and ask questions like, why would they have said that to me? What's in the background? What sin is operative in another person's life that they would that would hurt me this way? What hurt is driving them to hurt others? Instead of responding in malice or hate towards that person, to let that take over. The sort of response that says, how dare they do that? I'll, I'll find a way to make them pay. That's vengeance. So the inner disposition of the merciful is one of paying attention and trying to listen for the undercurrents the undercurrents of misery and pain in others that drives their sin. Even when the merciful person is the one hurt, even when you're the one that is hurt. But that's not all. There's this inner disposition of seeing the other person, willing to see their pain and enter in, and then to also act. So the blessed merciful also acts in acts of mercy. They identify with the misery of the other person, and then they do something about it. They're compelled to relieve suffering. They engage in acts of mercy, which is an action that relieves another's pain. So it's an inner disposition of sorrow. We can feel the weight. And then it's also an action to alleviate it. We need to see this tangibly. It's kind of theoretical right now. So let's look at some gospel accounts that show Jesus illustrating mercy for us. It's the best place to go. The first one, the parable of the Good Samaritan. One of the most well-known parables in the gospels, I think. It's a parable that Jesus tells in response to someone who asks him the question, who is my neighbor? I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? This is how Jesus responded. A man was traveling from Jerusalem up to, down to Jericho, a lone traveler by himself, and on his way, he meets a band of robbers. They strip him of all his possessions. They beat him. 
They leave him for the, in the ditch on the side of the road to die. They take all of his money. Soon enough, a priest was traveling down the road and saw the man. He passed by on the other side. He kept going on his way. Not too long after, a Levite came by, another person who worked in the temple. And he also passed by on the other side. He saw him and kept on going. Then came a Samaritan. And by the way, Samaritans were, the, were a racially despised minority group of people at this time. The Samaritan was one who was treated as less in society because of his race. What did the Samaritan do? Let's pick up Luke's account of this, of this story in verse 33, 1033. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Jesus then responds to the one who asked him the question, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The respondent said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. The Samaritan man showed mercy to the one who had fell among the robbers. The Samaritan man saw the anguish of his fellow man. He saw him not as a person, but as his neighbor, as his very own neighbor. And he was compelled to act. He did something about it. He felt sympathy for him. And then he responded by binding up his wounds, by taking him to the inn, and by paying for his care out of his own pocket. This is mercy. The merciful fight to relieve the wreckage that sin creates in the lives of others. They fight for it. They have to do something about it. Sinclair Ferguson puts it like this. I love this quote. Mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin, whether it's his own or that of someone else. The Samaritan shows us this what it means to have mercy on the person who is in misery because of the sin of someone else, who has been hurt, unjustly so. Even when that someone else is supposed to be an enemy, the Samaritan and the, and the Jew were meant to be enemies. So Jesus says, congratulations to you. When you don't ignore the sorrow you experience for hurting people, when you don't just ignore that, that thought or in your heart and in your mind, but when you stop, when you get down on your hands and knees and do something about it, do something to relieve the suffering of another person whose life has been wrecked by sin. Congratulations to you. You know something about the heart of God. Now, if mercy was only about alleviating the misery of those whose lives have been broken due to the sin of someone else, I think it's a value that we all aspire to, right? This is one of the values of Christianity, of faith, and the church that's often celebrated by our culture. If there's anything that people look at the church and say, that's good, it's, it's this. It's what I'm talking about right now. It's the Mother Teresa's of, of faith. It's the nonprofits on the downtown east side, right, that our culture will yield that, okay, something good is coming from communities of faith. And this is right and good. This is, this is good. This is mercy. And we need to celebrate that and lead into it even more. But also, Jesus doesn't stop here. This isn't all of mercy. He pushes further. He asks for more, as he always does. He asks for our all. 
He shows us mercy is also about alleviating the misery of the person whose life has been wrecked by their own wrongdoing, their own sin. Jesus is at the temple one morning, early one morning, teaching as he often was. And a group of zealous teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they interrupt Jesus. They cause a commotion. They come in and they have someone with them. They have a woman with them. A woman, they report, who was caught in the act of adultery. They put it to Jesus. Okay, teacher, what do you say? Do we stone her as the law of Moses has told us? Or do we let her go free? Now, I want to pause here and recognize this woman was guilty of sin. The Pharisees are using her certainly to manipulate a situation to corner Jesus, which is deplorable how they're doing that. But she was, she was guilty. She committed adultery. She was unfaithful to her spouse. Now, think about the, anyone in your life, if you know anyone in your life, which I imagine you do, whose life has been wrecked by this same sin of adultery. Have you ever known someone whose spouse committed adultery against them? Think about what this does to a marriage, to kids, to a community even. It causes wreckage. And what is your first reaction? What is your first internal reaction towards the perpetrator? The one who cheated on their husband or wife for another, who forsake their covenantal vows in this way. Think about that. How do you respond? He turns to the crowd. Jesus turns to the crowd. Let's see what Jesus does. The one of you without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Slowly, one by one, the crowd dissipates. Eventually, Jesus is left alone, standing with the woman. John chapter 8 says it like this. Woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. Go and sin no more. No one else condemned you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is merciful. He sees her misery from her sin, and he responds to that. He sees she is guilty, too but he hones in on her misery, her pain, and he responds to that, knowing that in this place of deep brokenness and this misery in her experience, that that is rife soil for grace to work. Jesus doesn't excuse her sin, and he doesn't ignore it. He doesn't take it lightly, but he doesn't point the finger and condemn her to death either with a stone in his hand. He loves her when she is most unlovable, and he offers her a taste of divine grace. You've done wrong, and you know it. I see that. Now go and sin no more. So Jesus doesn't cling to the law. The law is a club to use to mete out justice, cold, hard justice. The law has done its work in this, in this woman's situation in her life. It's revealed her sin and brought her to the best place she could find herself, at the, at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of the God of mercy. And to the broken person, embarrassed and hurting at Jesus' feet, Jesus shows us God is a God of mercy, a God of life who does not delight in the death of the wicked, but yearns for all sinners to turn to him in repentance and receive life. 
It's the mercy of Jesus that invites this woman into gospel transformation. Jesus could have ordered her to be killed on the one hand. He could have dismissed her passively on the other. But in his mercy, and seeing and knowing her misery, Jesus acts in mercy by protecting her life and inviting her to repentance. This is the road of gospel work. Not the cold, hard legal code, not permissiveness, but encountering the one convicting, gracious love of Christ who in kindness calls sinners to himself. Now this forces us to ask some hard questions of ourselves, doesn't it, when we encounter those who have done wrong? Are we merciful? How bad do we want the sinners to pay, to be punished eye for eye, tooth for tooth? How quick are we to take the moral high ground when someone else fails? How good does it feel to have the finger pointed out in front at the other? Are we able to identify with the person that we're pointing at and say, you know what, it could have been me. Every time I sat down to write this sermon on mercy, one person in my life came to my mind. When I was younger, I attended a Christian camp as a kid, as a teenager growing up, and then worked at this camp and university as a counselor. And there was, a, there was a, one leader there who became a powerful role model for me. He was a powerful preacher. When he preached Christ, people came to faith. I saw it over and over. He was a role model for thou, literally thousands of, of kids. He stayed in my family's house even once when, when, when I was young, and when I was 19 and worked at this camp, he was my boss. A few years after this time of employment, I heard the worst news. This man, this role model, was fired from the camp, and he was now facing charges of sexual abuse of minors over a span of 10 years. And during that 10 years, I was a camper at that camp, and I was employed as a counselor. This is the person in my life, more than anyone else, I've felt the finger pointing towards condemnation, anger. I want you to be punished for what you've done. Now, before he was sentenced to a two-plus lifelong sentences in prison, he made a statement before a judge. And this video is online. And when you watch it, when I watch it, and as I said, I was writing the sermon, I couldn't get this off my mind, so I watched it last week. You see a broken person. You see just the shell of a human being. It's so sad. He tells the judge he thinks he should go to jail for what he's done, that he wishes he could give his life in exchange for what he's done. He's so racked by guilt and remorse, it's upsetting to watch. If there's anyone in my life who I felt vengeance towards, it's this person, felt betrayed by, who I wanted to pay, who I wanted, to be honest, to be kicked to the curb when he was down because of what he'd done. No mercy. You don't deserve it. You've had your chance. But in watching this video, again, he says something that was so convicting that I have to share with you. He says, I I hope the rest of my life I can be known for repentance. Because if I know one thing, this is all I know. If the grace of Christ isn't good enough for me, and I am the worst of sinners, then it isn't good enough for anybody. Now, I've had to sit with that because part of me, to be honest with you, wishes it wasn't true. 
In this case, part of me really wants to point the finger and say, no, you had your chance and you blew it and you hurt a lot of people in the way, not for you. But you know what? It is true. God is a God of mercy. And at the feet of Jesus, a truly repentant sinner is always welcome, no matter what they've done. Now, does this mean there is no justice? No, that's not what it means. Should, it be, should he be in prison? Yes. But here's the question for me that, that I have had to wrestle with and get to. And for you towards those in your life who you may want to condemn, to know if we're moving into the place of the blessed merciful. What is my hope for him, for, these, for that person in your life? What is my hope? Do I hope for restoration and redemption? Do I hope for transformation? Do I hope when I'm at the table of undeserving friends with Jesus in eternity that he's there? Do I hope that? Or do I want vengeance and retaliation? Would I prefer that their lives end in misery and pain and death because of what they've done? Hard. The merciful person braves hoping for restoration. The merciful vulnerably hope that God can redeem any person. Because they know that if God is a God of grace, and if that grace isn't powerful enough to save the worst of sinners, then it's not powerful enough to save any of us. The merciful releases vengeance to God, okay? Again, justice, yes. The merciful fight for justice. That's different from revenge. What's the difference? Justice deals with wrongdoing with a hope and an intention for restoration. Human revenge in our hearts deals with wrongdoing with the intent to crush and destroy. The merciful don't lop the head off the wrongdoer when they're down but they seek to restore them with meekness. The merciful fights for justice, yes. They don't kick the person in the gutter when they're already on their knees. No, I want to acknowledge and pause. I've cracked the door on a huge conversation about forgiveness and reconciliation. And, and if you're in a situation where you've been deeply hurt in one of these ways, abused in any way, then uh, please reach out and let's talk about this afterwards. Um, Two quick things. Forgiveness never means condoning sin. It never means saying that was okay and, and accepting that on yourself. That's not what forgiveness is. It's, it's coming to a, a realization of the weight of it and then releasing it to God. And reconciliation never means putting yourself in an unsafe relationship with someone who's hurt you. It's never that. We can talk about that more later. Please reach out to myself or Alistair. There's people here who are happy to work through these issues with you if this, is, if this is really upsetting for you or difficult for you to wrestle with. The point is, where is our hope lying? Where, where do we want and, and desire and, and hope to see God work? Are we merciful in that way? Okay, why are, the, why are the merciful blessed? Why are they blessed? The merciful are blessed because they will receive mercy. The promise is in the future tense. Yes, re representing this, this kingdom of God that is, it's already come, but it's also coming. Alistair talked about this last week as the already not yet. It's here, but it's going to come in full one day. And the promise for the merciful is that they've received God's mercy, but one day they will receive it in full and they'll be doused by the mercy of God in a, in a wholly new way. 
The merciful have received God's mercy, yes, because they're in the kingdom. They re- they've received God's gift of favor and delight upon them. But we, what we see is only part, what we see now, our experience of mercy now, is, is only part of the goodness and fullness that we will taste in full when Jesus comes and gives it all to us. When Jesus brings heaven down to earth and redeems everything for his glory. But although we wait for this full expression, this mercy carries power now. Because when you know the mercy of a God who was willing to risk everything, to see the world from your perspective and mine, to lay it aside, to lay his heavenly throne aside in order to enter in and to know our misery and to take it on himself, who was willing to get down on his hands and knees and to serve and pour out his life, his all, in order to restore the dignity of people wrecked by sin. When you know the mercy of this God named Jesus, who was also the rabbi who spoke these words on a mountainside by the Sea of Galilee, when you know this mercy in an intimate way, when you know it not like you know stuff on a dusty old hard drive in your closet, but when you know it like you know your favorite song, like you know the face and the voice of the person you love the most, the sort of knowing that transforms you and shapes you and, and, and becomes a part of you and bubbles out of you because it's just part of you. It's who you are. When you know God's mercy in this way, you will grow in mercy towards others. You become merciful by receiving mercy. That's how the beatitude works. And you receive mercy by knowing your need for it and opening up this to God. If you don't think you need mercy, if that's something you're wrestling with, I really need mercy from God, then ask this with me. Can you think of any time that you needed mercy, that you did need need someone to have mercy on you? When you were maybe the traveler on the road, beaten beaten down, robbed, and someone came by and treated your wounds. Maybe when you were the one who committed adultery, and Jesus said to you, No, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. The time when you really blew it, when you were embarrassed, when you were ridiculed, and you had to cry, have mercy, especially when that happens in front of other people. And then someone looked at you and said, you know what? It could have been me. Let's figure this out together. When you've been shown mercy like this, when you've had that experience of really messing it up, and then receiving mercy. The next morning when you wake up, it's usually a lot easier to give mercy to someone else, isn't it? When you've had to swallow all that pride and come face to face with yourself at your worst on display, the next day it's a different story, isn't it? You can lay aside some of that skepticism you have towards the poor or the condemning finger pointed at the doer of wrong. You can lay that aside and dare to act in mercy. This is how Jesus treats you and I all the time. This is how he offers us mercy every single day. He doesn't condemn, but he convicts in love. He draws us to us in kindness. He says, come, leave your life of sin and follow me. Come, stop doing it, but come, come to me. You're safe at my feet. This is the mercy of God that brings healing to the soul, friends. This is God's mercy. Come to his feet. 
Come sit at his feet. He's a God of mercy. He won't push you away. He will bring you in.